Let's pray for our time together first, shall we? Lord, again, I thank you for these men. I thank you for the privilege and the joy that it is to stand here amongst a group of men who love you and love one another and are sharing their lives together and growing together. I thank you for your kindness and goodness to bring us here this morning, uh, to bring us through the week that you gave to us, Lord, a week with challenges and a week with joys, a week that's been full of your provision to us. I thank you for that. Lord, I thank you that you've given us your word. Lord, your word is truth and your word is what sanctifies us. And I pray that it would do its work in us today. I do pray for us as we spend time visiting together. Lord, that you would encourage us in our discussion time. Lord, that our discussion time would be a time of sharing, a time of growing, a time of understanding. Lord, a time of sharpening and clarifying. And that you would do the work in us for this, Lord. I pray that you would do that. I thank you for the opportunity to hear teaching today from Denny. Lord, I pray that you would prepare us, even as we're discussing, to to be hearing how you worked in the hearts of Israel's kings and what that means for us. Lord God, I pray that you would prepare us. I pray for our time now, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see your son Jesus in Scripture, that you would allow us to see him for his desire to reconcile us to you, and Lord, and how that overruled every other thing. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. What we're talking about this year is how we prepare to shepherd our hearts when we open our Bibles and how we spend time in prayer with the Lord. And uh, what I have for you this morning is one more area in which, one more way in which we can grow our affections for Christ as we have our Bibles open. And what I have found to be very helpful and what I hope is helpful for you guys as well is to contemplate the fact of Jesus' willingness to be used as a substitute sacrifice in God's system of justice. And if we can get past the theology of all of that, just see Jesus' willingness to do that. His willingness to set aside um, all of his rights and all of his privileges as God and to go to a cross for us. And what I'm going to do is start in verse 33 of Luke 23. And we're going to see what Jesus was willing to do. And as I contemplate these things, this helps put my mind and my heart in a right frame of mind as I enter into a time of prayer and, and, and scripture reading in the mornings. Luke 23, 33. Uh, Jesus has been, he's been arrested. He's gone through an overnight illegal trial with his Hebrew authorities. He's been before Pilate. He's been before Herod. He's been back to Pilate. Um, lots of things are happening here. And the decision has been made. Oh, and he's been scourged and he's been beaten. And the decision has been made to crucify him. So we go to verse 33. And they've taken Jesus out. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. Crucifixion was the Roman means of torture and death. I think we all have a reasonable understanding of what it is. It's a process by which the person's weight of their own body um, suffocates and asphyxiates them. As they hang on the cross for hours and hours and hours and hours, uh, they slowly become less and less able to breathe. Uh, the pressure increases in the, the chest cavity area, and eventually they, they suffocate by the weight of their own body. And in many cases, um, you know, this was a very, very painful thing. Jesus was willing to be crucified. He knew he would be crucified. He spoke of it several times to his disciples, 
And it's humbling and it's sobering for me to realize that Jesus was willing to not simply end his life, but end his life in crucifixion for me as God's process and God's means of reconciling me to himself because of the offense that my sin is against him. So a lot of times I find it very helpful for me just to think through the fact that Jesus was willing to endure a suffering. If you read Mark's account of the crucifixion, you'll realize it, it took six hours for him to hang there. Six hours. And, and it was more for the other guys who were there because um, Jesus was beaten badly and he was already in a weakened condition by the time he got to the cross. Uh, but he hung there for six hours and that must have been the most agonizing, torturing six hours that, that I could ever imagine. And it's really helpful for me to realize on in the mornings when I'm reading my, my Bible that, that I don't really even have in my human experience a way of, of measuring and gauging that. It's just beyond anything that I've ever experienced. I've been through a, a few painful things, um, but nothing like that. And so that, that's helpful to focus my mind and my heart on Christ. If we drop down a couple more verses, starting in verse 35, we'll see that there are four groups of people who humiliated Jesus. They humiliated him. Starting in verse 35, there are people standing by and they're looking on. There's passers-by. And what they're doing is they're mocking him. Um, in some of the other gospel accounts, you see the details about how the, the passers-by are, are wagging their, their finger and they're, they're wagging their head at him and they're mocking him and they're hurling insults at him. So there's people standing by looking on. That's one group of people. There's another group of people who are there and that's in the middle of verse. The rulers who are sneering at him were saying, he saved others. Let him save himself if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. So the religious authorities are there. The, the spiritual rulers are there. And what they're saying to Jesus is, you can't possibly be God because you're still on that cross. If you were on that cross, you would get down and you would save yourself. Um, the irony in that is that Jesus was proving that he was God by staying on the cross. By remaining on the cross for those six hours, he was proving that he was God. Because he was doing what only God can do. And that is satisfying the wrath of a holy God against every sinner who would put their trust in Jesus himself as their Savior. And so Jesus was actually proving himself to be God while he was on the cross and being mocked as if he was one who was not God. It's very helpful for me to remember that. And that just sobers me of who it is that I'm talking to when I'm in prayer in the morning and who it is that I'm reading about when I'm reading the Gospels in my Bible in the morning. So that's the second group of people. And then there's a third group of people in verse 36. There's the soldiers. They also mock him. Um, he's very likely naked here. And he's hanging on a cross. And, and we don't even know exactly how high it is above the, the ground. But, but he's right there in plain view. And they're mocking him. And they come up to him and they're offering him sour wine. Another gospel account talks about the fact that the soldiers just sit beneath the cross. They sit there unaware of what they've done. They've just crucified the creator of the entire universe. And they're unaware. They have no grasp. They have no concept of what they've just done. Here they are mocking him. Um, they're dividing his clothing. They're bickering over his clothing and whatever else. Um, they have no idea who he is. And here is the, the king of the universe, their creator right there. And Jesus was willing to endure mocking from them as well pagans, Gentiles, Romans. He's enduring that for them. So that's the third group of people. And then there's the fourth group of people. 
That's verse 39. That's the criminals who are hanged there with him. Uh, other gospel accounts tell us that on the way to the cross, both of these men are clearly sinners. Both of these men are clearly dead and lost because they're hurling insults at him. We see one of them here in verse 39. He says, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and save us. This is an amazing passage because what you see in this passage is that the very thing that this, this first criminal is asking Jesus to do, Jesus is doing in the life of the other criminal right there on the cross. Okay, so they're hanging there. He says, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and save us. The other answered and rebuked him and said, do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? We're suffering justly. So that, that second criminal is telling us that both of these guys deserve their punishment, just like every one of us, right? And then he says to us, um, but this man has done nothing wrong. And then he goes to Jesus and he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So he knows exactly who Jesus is. He sees Jesus right there being crucified just like he is. So he sees Jesus as the lamb, but he also knows that Jesus is the lion and that Jesus is coming in his kingdom. And Jesus proves that he saves the man right here in verse 43. He says, truly, I say to you today, this day, you have salvation this day. You will be with me in paradise. So Jesus was willing to endure all of this mocking, all of this jeering, all of this sneering, all of this ridicule, all of this embarrassment um, so that he could save me as a part of the process of saving me. This is really helpful to me. But what we want to do is we want to see how those two things, the actual crucifixion itself and the embarrassment and the shame and the, the insults and the mocking uh, from everybody around him don't even begin to compare to the ultimate difficulty and the ultimate challenge that Jesus had. So let's back up a page or two to Luke chapter 22, and we're going to go to verse uh, 44. Luke 22, 44. Jesus, he is here in the garden the arrest process has, is just about to begin, and the whole trial process is about to begin. Jesus is in the garden, and he is praying, and he is in agony. He was praying very fervently, and his sweat became drops like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. Uh, his sweat didn't become drops like drops of blood because he was looking at a crucifixion. His sweat didn't become like drops of blood because he was... Uh, contemplating what it was like to hang nakedly in front of other men. And his sweat didn't become like drops of blood because um, he didn't want to be insulted and people not think he was God. That wasn't the issue. Um, his sweat became like drops of blood because he knew exactly what he was going to do and he was going to receive the Father's wrath against everyone who had put their trust in him. So we're going to turn to the right and see what that looks like. We're going to go to Hebrews chapter 5. And this is where I see the weight of what Jesus really understood. We have to remember that Jesus was two things at the same time. He was fully God and he was fully man, completely, both entities at one time. And because he was fully God, he knew everything about God's power, God's righteousness, God's justice. He had every single understanding of the level of God's holiness. He understood how much of an offense everybody's sin is against God. He knew all of that in a way that we could never know because he was God. But because he was man, he had not yet gone through the experience of being on the receiving end of God's response to those offenses. 
And we're going to take a look at Hebrews chapter 5, uh, verse 8. And we see this. Verse 7 talks about Jesus' preparation for the cross, his understanding of what was coming and how difficult this was for him. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. He learned obedience in the process of being on the cross. He actually learned what it was like to be on the receiving end of God's avenging anger against us and against me. Um, And Jesus was willing to do that to reconcile sinful people like me to himself. Uh, A process that I will never understand in this age, in this lifetime, because I don't have any grasp of of how complete and how big of an offense uh, even my smallest sin is against the Holy God. I I just don't have any idea of, of how offensive it really is. And I really don't have any idea Um, I can only begin to imagine um, about the size and the magnitude of God's avenging wrath. I mean, I can look at um, volcanoes. I can contemplate the surface of the sun. It's 5,500 degrees or something and burning metal and whatever that is like. Um, I can only contemplate it. I I can't begin to imagine what it was really, really like to experience the full weight of the Father's wrath against me. Um, So when I ponder those three things, the actual crucifixion itself, the humiliation of Jesus on the cross, but mostly the suffering of Jesus. Um, that really helps me get my mind right and ready to engage with God's word. It, it helps me humble myself. It helps me to remember who I am, where I belong in God's system of justice, and what Jesus did to reconcile me. So hopefully that's uh, a blessing to you guys and helpful to you. If, if that's something you're already doing and contemplating, praise God. If, if not, uh, you may want to consider that, and uh, perhaps that would assist you as you think about how to stoke up your prayer life and stoke up your, your scripture reading in the morning. This is uh, this is Denny's maiden voyage for teaching build this year, but certainly not his maiden voyage for teaching in his career. So what I'm going to do is turn it over to Denny, and you guys are going to be blessed by Denny. Thanks, Scott. Well, let me pray for us before we get started. Father, we are so grateful to be one of yours. We are children of yours that you care for, you encourage us, you protect us, you provide for us. One of the things that you've given us uh, is your word, and we want to use that this morning in a constructive way uh, to uh, encourage each other, encourage uh, and support the things that are uh, that we are shepherding our hearts with and to uh, take that shepherding uh, beyond that room, beyond this room, uh, into our homes uh, and uh, our neighborhoods and at work. We thank you, Father, for your careful care for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today we're going to uh, look at uh, God's design for Israel, and we're going to look at three different kings. Actually, it was his first three kings, and uh, from most of you, for most of you that uh, know God's word, uh, that uh, God um, did not want to have other kings other than himself uh, for Israel. So um, uh, that's the, uh, the first thing that uh, uh, we should recognize. The, uh, I'd like to encourage you today um, from the standpoint of uh, um, 
humility. Um, we're going to look at uh, what it means to be uh, a humble king. Um, we want to uh, take that humility and apply it uh, in the way that we shepherd our family, the, the way that we uh, interact with each other. Um, and in humility, uh, there is a, a part of us, as maybe men or human beings, that we uh, are reluctant to ask. And uh, so we, uh, the first thing that I would like to encourage you is that uh, um, we, we, we all started as, uh, uh, as unbelievers, and uh, a number probably were in Christian homes, but um, for the most part, we knew nothing of God's character. We knew nothing of what it means to walk in his ways. And uh, so the first thing that I would encourage you to do is to ask. Um, there are many times during the day, during your week, that uh, asking can be uh, a benefit to you. Um, in shepherding your home, in shepherding your wife, at the end of the day, um, uh, I found it uh, very beneficial to me uh, enlightening to me to sit with my wife and just say, what were your highs and lows for today? And uh, in listening to the highs and the lows uh, and being uh, uh, hopefully one who is uh, one who listens, quick to listen, slow to speak, that I would be able to uh, determine what those lows were. And a question that... Uh, I did not often ask, but should have asked, is that uh, how could I have helped you in going through the low points of your day? Should we, could we have prayed over uh, that situation? Um, could I have helped you in shepherding your heart? So uh, I just in humility, uh, I'm encouraging, encouraging you to ask. Um, the second thing that I would say is that uh, um, be a uh, in um, it's uh, Matthew 5 4 blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted uh, to mourn does not necessarily mean that you're going to mourn over every event but it is to mourn over your sin be broken over your sin and uh, as uh as men, as believers who walk, sometimes we um, we are slow to seek forgiveness, slow to confess sins. You know, maybe it's a maybe it's a sin that uh, we don't think it's uh, it's not a very big sin, but I, I'm encouraging you to uh, be a mourner over your sin. And one of the things that uh, uh, really helped our house was is that uh, we um, we didn't want to let the sun go down on um, any particular sinful situation and uh, or on anger and so we uh, we just encouraged uh, a reconcilement uh, uh, especially among among siblings uh, I have five children and uh, um, Well, I'll hesitate to tell you how many are walking with the Lord, <laughs> in my opinion. But uh, 
Um, but uh, you know that when you put uh, uh, seven people in a house or two people in a house, uh, <laughs> we're going to sin. We're going to sin against each other. And so I just encourage you to, um, uh, and even to sit with, uh, with your children or uh, whatever, and just say, what, you know, what did you struggle with today? And as a dad, how could, how could I have helped you in that situation? Could I, could I have um, rehearsed this situation with you? Could I have done something different to help you? So that's, what I'm, that's my encouragement for you, is to humble yourself and ask, how, how could I have shepherded you, shepherded you differently? Um, or what could I have done differently to not... Uh, cause this situation. Um, maybe I sinned against uh, uh, Barb, my wife. So be humble enough to ask and then be humble enough to, uh, to listen. So uh, anyway, um, God's design for Israel. If you would take a look at, I think it's on the back page of your homework. Uh, I, I just want to run through those real quick because I want you to keep these in mind as we discuss uh, the kings that, uh, the first three kings that God put in place, which would be Saul, David, and Solomon. And it says, be wary, um, be wary of pride in seasons of success. And the uh, passage that, with that is 1 Peter 5, 5. You younger men likewise be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So we're gonna, we are going to see uh, in these three kings um, what humility, what humility looks like. Remember, remember the deceitfulness of your own heart. Counsel yourself away from justifying sin. I may, uh, you may get the impression that I might be spending a lot of time on sin. But when you consider your relationship with God, this is you, this is God, what is going to draw you further away from God is when you get sin in the middle. And so I'm just, uh, um, uh, if you find yourself saying that, well, uh, the reason I didn't do this was because of this, well, you are justifying your position. Um, and justifying is is uh, not uh, not a way to address, address sin. You are the sinner. Um, seek reconcilement or forgiveness from the one that you sinned against, uh, and accept that you are a sinner. Don't confuse uh, external repentance with biblical repentance. We, uh, I, I've experienced this in, in a, a number of situations at our house. Is that uh, um, please forgive me for not uh, getting my chores done on time um, the following day. Please forgive me for not getting getting my chores done on time the next day. Please forgive me and on it go on on and so forth, um, which caused Barb and I to realize that this is this is lip service. And it was not a, uh, a heartfelt seeking uh, forgiveness, confession of, uh, of sin. Um, look, for, look for the way to escape. 
uh, when faced with a situation which you have demonstrated weakness, uh, this can be many different categories. And we're looking at uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Um, there are so many, so many ways, so many situations that we, uh, that we enter into. And uh, uh, I know as a man that uh, um, uh, my eyes are, uh, are lustful eyes. And so if I, am, if I have a tendency to uh, seek to see things that I shouldn't, then why am I putting myself in that situation? So um, if, I, uh, if I know that uh, something is going to get under my skin, uh, whether it's not having chores done or other things, uh, then I should look for a way to escape that and for the most part, it's looking to Christ and saying, you died for this, you died for this, you died for me. How can I, how can I say that my anger over uh, not having pizza tonight versus um, cereal? <laughs> you know? Uh, <laughs> um, Christ died for my anger. So, just by elevating Christ is uh, um, is a good way to uh, escape. Um, so, um, in Matthew uh, Matthew five four, uh, blessed are those who mourn; they sh- they shall be for they shall be comforted. Uh, we really need to, uh, uh, as I indicated before mourn over our sin. We need to have a disgust for our sin and a reverence for God and His character. Um, God hates sin. And we, got, we need to be in that, uh, uh, in that uh, realm with Him. <clears throat> and in, in your repentance and confession, desire fellowship with God. Don't harbor that sin. And then, uh, as in, in many of our uh, situations, I shouldn't say many, but in some of our situations where uh, people have uh, in this church have under, undergone Matthew 18, uh, we desire that they walk in repentance. Repentance, confession may be a one-time situation, but repentance is not a, a one-time, a momentary item. It is walking in repentance. How does that path look? And uh, so, uh, when we uh, when we repent, you know, uh, the Bible says to turn away, turn 180 degrees. If the sin is this way, then you should be walking this way. <clears throat> so, um, but it is a, it is a path of repentance, and uh, and this is usually uh, this is something that uh, for you uh, that have children. Um, maybe younger children, that uh, uh, the sign of a believer is someone who is a confessor and a repenter. If, there, if you have someone who constantly uh, does not get those chores done, and the only time that they confess is that when you say, uh, I, don't, I don't see the garbage is empty. Oh, yeah, I was going to do that. Uh, forgive me, Dad. I... I I confess I didn't get that done. Well, um, 
it would have been uh, um, a more true act of repentance and forgiveness if they would have come and said, you know what, Dad, I ran out of time. Uh, will you forgive me? I'll get to those garbages later today. That is, a, is an act of repentance. So confession and repentance after you're caught. <laughs> no, your heart was not convicted. You confess because you got caught. And then see that justice is done. Um, make right with all who are affected. If you sin against your children, um, which I had done many times. Um, I disciplined uh, my middle son one day, and he said, uh, um, you didn't discipline Matt for that yesterday. <laughs> oh, that's right, I didn't. Forgive me. Forgive me. And uh, uh, so it's, uh, um, like I say, you, uh, as the leader of your house, need to demonstrate you need to be um, uh, a repenter or a confessor and a repenter. Show them how it's done. All right. <clears throat> so um, let's move into uh, today's lesson. We're going to start in Deuteronomy 17. And uh, in, this, uh, in this particular area, it's Moses is describing the king that Israel, uh, describing the king that Israel will have as they are about to cross the Jordan River and enter the Promised Land. And there, there are a couple of things in here that uh, are... Uh, um, I've read this, this uh, passage many times, and, uh, but I'm still uh, intrigued by how God puts things in His Word to remind us of what we need to do. Um, Need to, uh, uh, re we need to remember that God's plan for Israel is to lead them out of Egypt and that they would be different from all other nations. His plan included that they would be governed by his laws and that Israel would have no king, that God would be their king. That was God's design, that they would that they would know his laws and those laws would be on their hearts and that would cause them to be obedient. His nation was to be set apart. They were to be holy. And God would do that. He would give them military uh, victories over nations that were occupying the promised land. But God also knew that they would be, unfaith they would be unfaithful. So, um, and you don't have to go there, uh, go here or whatever. Uh, Deuteronomy 9.1 will tell us uh, what God was telling Israel as they, uh, uh, as they were about to cross the Jordan. Uh, it says, Hear, O Israel, you are crossing over the Jordan today to go into dispossessed nations greater and mightier than you, great nations fortified to heaven. Sounds like a pretty ominous task. A people great and tall, the sons of Anakim, whom you know and whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of, uh, of Anak? Know therefore today that it is the Lord your God who is crossing over before you as a consuming fire. He will destroy them and he will subdue them before you so that you may drive them out and destroy them quickly just as the Lord has spoken to you. So this is, this is what God preempted Israel as they were about to cross the Jordan. Um, 
and uh, enter in um, to this land. Um, going up against uh, a, a race or men that were much bigger than them, um, but he said, I am a consuming fire. Deuteronomy 12, uh, 10 says, When you cross the Jordan and live in the land which your God, which the God, which the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, he gives you rest from all your enemies around you so that you live in security. Once again, knowing God's word, knowing his promises, knowing his covenants, uh, very important. Because he's, make, he, he's making a commitment to his people. So then let's move on to Deuteronomy 17, uh, 14 through 20. God says, when you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you and you possess it and live in it, and then you say, Israel, you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me. Right away, Israel saying, ah, no, we don't want this. We want, our, we want a king like every other nation. We don't want what you have, God. You shall surely, and God is saying this again, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your countrymen, you shall set as king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countryman. Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself. Keep in mind here, this is a pattern. This is what God, his pattern for a king. Okay? He should not be a foreigner. Moreover, he, sh he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses, since the Lord has said to him, you shall never return that way. God pulled Israel out of, out of Egypt, and you know from God's word that how many, what kind of plagues that he inflicted. Um, it just was, uh, um, he pulled them out of many, many years of oppression. He listened to them, he listened to their call, to their grumbling, and um, he pulled them out uh, and was taking them into the promised land. So his, his, uh, his command or what he expressed to them, you shall never again return that way. Verse 17, he shall not multiply wives for himself or else his heart will turn away, nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. Now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on the scroll in the presence of Levitical priests. How many of you sit and read from your Bible and actually write out what you're reading? This is this is this is a uh, this is a pattern or a, a a framework that God is is requiring of his of his king. He shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levit Levitical priests. What was the law that they had? The Pentateuch. The first five chapters of your Bible. Pretty short, huh? Easy. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you shouldn't have any writer's cramps when you get done with that. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes, 
that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left, so that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. This is what God wanted in a king. And as you, uh, as you look at that and uh, as you uh, see that uh, the word of God that uh, each of you probably has in, um, in book form, uh, on your computer, uh, on your uh, cell phone, all of these things in his, in God's way of looking at a king and looking at you as a shepherd. This should be at your side and you should be observing all the words of this law and these statutes. So what is the provision that's a a part of this passage? When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, he's saying when giving Israel his guidelines for their kings, God wanted Israel to remember that they, that how it was they got into the promised land. Their possession, possession of the promised land was only because God had given it to them. So in the same way that God had authority to give them the land, he also had the authority to regulate the way they would rule over the land he gave them. So if you think back in Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20, um, how he describes the humility uh, that is there and uh, where they are to seek their guidance from. Instead of taking, um, instead of taking the gospel out to other nations, now this is Israel, Israel was to live within their borders and to live in such a way that people would notice the difference. Interesting, huh? So then we look at, uh, then we look at pride. Verses 16 and 17. And you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me. God had already told them that he wanted to be their king. And in Deuteronomy 14.2, he says, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. God's design for Israel's governance is that he would be their king. He would give them a law. He would give them protection from other nations. He would give them peace. This was all so that the surrounding nations would see the stark distinction and be drawn to and be drawn to Israel. God's design in the Old Testament is that the Gentiles would come to Israel and he would use their unique status as a nation without a king as one of the primary means of doing that to represent them in a unique status. But Israel would say, "No, I want a king so that I can be so I cannot, so that I can be not separate from the other nations, but so that I can be the same as all the other nations. This is a pattern that we live we live in every day, as we as we venture into the world and we stay in the world and we leave God's word behind and we uh, forget His commandments and lack obedience. What do we become like? We become like the world. We're not separate from the world. 
So what are the prohibitions that were listed in the, in this passage? He shall not multiply horses for himself. He shall not multiply wives for himself. He shall not, nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. Uh, the multiplication of horses, this was in, uh, in this period of time, designated military strength. Chariots, uh, soldiers on horses, uh, much more, uh, much more powerful than uh, uh, foot, so foot, foot soldiers. Shall not multiply wives for himself. Um, God wanted the king whose devotion was to one wife, just like He's requiring devotion to one God. Nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. God wanted the king who would daily find his treasure in the Lord and not in material possessions. So the prescription that he lays out, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. Notice who does the writing. The king of God's chosen people is to write the copy of the law for himself. And it shall be with him the copy was placed to the side of his throne so that it would have immediate he would have immediate access to God's wisdom in all situations. He shall read it all the days of his life. It's not enough to simply write it down. The king needs to inform himself of God's design for him and notice how often he does this all the days of his life. There's no being complete. There's no retirement. All the days of his life. <laughs> that he may learn to fear the Lord his God and, be, and by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes, a reverence for God comes from diligently obeying God's law. The more you know of God's character, the more of you know of his laws, the more that you strive to be in obedience, the more that you will have reverence for God. Reverence is a fear of God, not a not a scared fear, but a fear from the standpoint of who He is, all knowing, all seeing, ever present, all powerful. God can change your life in a moment, changed your heart in a moment. The daily intake of God's word keeps keeps the man humble in his dealing with his neighbors. His heart would not be lifted up above his countrymen, and compared uh, versus compared to the other nations' kings, who were more dominant and uh, uh, sought to elevate themselves. And this is this is applicable in what we do in our families, even though that uh, as shepherds. Uh, of our families, um, just because we are the man does not mean that we uh, that we have the dominance over uh, our spouse. One of the things that uh, uh, was very meaningful for me early in my uh, my walk, I've been a Christian for since uh, I was 44 years old, which is 25 years ago. Um, 
was that uh, uh, my bride told me, she says, I don't know if I have the confidence or the trust to follow you. <clears throat> so, <laughs> how can I achieve your trust? <laughs> um, so, anyway, um, that in his heart he would not be lifted above his countrymen, not to be lifted above your spouse. Lead in a way that is glorifying to God. Lead in a way that you can demonstrate uh, true, holy worship of God. You will not win your spouse's respect or your children's respect or your neighbor's respect in, a, in the blink of an eye. You will not do that. It is performance over time. And then this man, if he keeps, uh, if by daily intake, uh, this man is resolved to obey what he has been reading. The promise. Verse 20, so that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. God's design was that Israel would forever be a light to the dark nations around them. So that, so that is God's design for Israel's king focusing on the continuance of that kingdom. That's why you are to teach your children and your grandchildren. God's way was good in keeping his commandments. There is great reward, and Israel's reward was to be a testimony to the nations around them of the goodness and the rightness of living in a subordinate covenantal relationship with God, the God who created the universe. Central to every testimony is the heart of the one giving the testimony. So let's look at the lives of Israel's first three kings and see what their lives reveal about their hearts. In 1 Samuel 8, and you don't have to go there, Samuel gives a warning to Israel as to what an earthly king will do for them. They wanted a king. What will that king do for you? Well, first of all, he's going to put your sons in the military. He's going to make your daughters his servants, cooks, bakers, house cleaners. He's going to take your best land and your best livestock. He's going to tax your harvest. He's going to take your best servants. Why do you want a king? <laughs> so let's look at Saul. Um, and we'll take a look at, uh, in a couple of different phases, the start uh, the context, Saul has been uh, made the king of Israel. Uh, other nations are oppressing Israel. A common way to do this was to uh, lay siege against them. If you, if you take a look at the country of Israel, it's surrounded by other countries. Israel is not very big. And uh, so they, uh, they oppressed in a way that they would lay siege against them and uh, literally cut off their, their food supply. And hungry people don't make good decisions. Uh, one of the nations that did this uh, with some regularity was Ammon. And the verses we're going to read show us how Saul came, came, to, be a prominent, came to be prominent in Israel. And that's 1 Samuel 11, uh, verses 1, 4, uh, 6, and 7. Now Nahash, this is verse 1, Nahash the Ammonite came up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. And the next couple of verses describe how Ammon sought to oppress Israel. 
If you drop down to verse 4, Then the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul and spoke these words in the hearing of the people, and all the people lifted up their voices and wept. Israel was ready to live and serve with the Ammonites. The king, Nahash, said, no way. His response was, I will allow you to be a part of my kingdom and serve, but each one of you, I am going to gouge out one of your eyes. Not a very appealing uh, appealing scenario. 1 Samuel 11, 6 and 7, And the Spirit of God came upon Saul mightily when he heard these words, and he became very angry. He took a yoke of oxen, cut them in pieces, and sent them throughout the territory of Israel by the hand of messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and after Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out as one man. And then 1 Samuel 11, 11, The next morning Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp at the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. Those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. Remember, God promised to deal with uh, Israel's enemies, in which he did with the uh, Ammonites. So as we look at uh, some of the observations, the, uh, it says the Spirit of God came uh, upon Saul. Uh, this was uh, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came on Saul in a temporary manner. It's unlike the Holy Spirit that dwells uh, in New Testament believers. But Saul having the Holy Spirit uh, was, is, a, uh, is having the Spirit of God with him. Uh, the dread fell of, uh, of the Lord fell on the people because of Saul's willingness to stand up to Israel's oppressors. Saul possesses some little military, level of military strategy and wisdom because he divided his, his soldiers into three military units. And uh, if you look back at Saul's background, he came from a fairly well-educated, wealthy family, and he did have uh, some military training. He came from the, he was, uh, came from the tribe of Benjamin. Saul is now well positioned to serve as Israel's king. The Holy Spirit is with him. He has respect and the following of the people of Israel. He survived the first test. First test. He's off to a pretty good start. So here's the warning. Um, 400 years before the time of Saul, Saul's reign was approximately from 1050 to 1010 the Lord had released Israel from slavery in Egypt. So 400 years prior to Saul. Israel was journeying to, journeying to the promised land and Amalek set himself against Israel. Amalek of the Amalekites uh, didn't allow Israel to pass through and caused them uh, stress and strife to go uh, around his nation. And the Lord was about to uh, exercise his vengeance against Amalek. All of these centuries later, God did not forget. In 1 Samuel 15, 3, he's telling Saul, Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has, and do not spare him, but put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, 
camel, and donkey. Saul had the privilege of being used as an instrument in the Lord's hand as the Lord executes his vengeance on the nations who oppose him. Now here's, uh, here's the compromise. There was the warning, the instruction that was given, now the compromise. 1 Samuel 15, 7 through 9. So Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as you, as you go to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He captured Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were not willing to destroy them utterly. But everything, despised and worthless, they utterly destroyed. Well, the Lord gave Saul great success, but here is where Saul decided, yeah, I'm going to do this a little differently. I'm not going to be in full obedience. So he kept the best of the spoils. So uh, as we look at this, uh, we see a lack of obedience. Uh, and we see um, when we start uh, resting on our own competence, our own selves, uh, that is a pride issue. So as we look at verse 9, Saul was more than happy to destroy everything despised and worthless. However, he was not willing to destroy everything utterly. On the heels of great success, Saul deliberately asserted his own will over and against God's commands. Though his way was better than God's way, success had given him confidence in his own ability uh, to make decisions. So what was Saul's response to sin? We look at 1 uh, Samuel 15. Starting in verse 20, then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord and went on the mission on which the Lord sent me and have brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took some of the spoil, sheep and oxen, and choicest, and the choicest of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. <laughs> the people. It was the people who did it. It wasn't me. So here's, here is uh, that justification that, you know, it wasn't me. I would have done it differently, but it was, there. It was them. Um, and then I thought uh, just the, uh, the personal pronoun there, it says, devoted to destruction to sacrifice to the Lord your God. Yeah. Interesting. So... Um, so does the Lord delight in burnt offerings as much as he delights in obedience? Well, they, they used uh, these animals. Uh, Saul said, we're going to bring them back. We're gonna, these are perfect sacrifices. We're going to use this to sacrifice and worship God. Well, um, God cherishes obedience much more than sacrifice. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and listened to their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. Then he said, I have sinned, but please honor me now before the elders of my people, before Israel, and go back with me that I may worship the Lord your God. Uh, external confession, external seeking of repentance, what he wanted was, is he, he, he said, 
Uh, I have sinned. Forgive me. Now let's get back together. Go with me back to Israel so that I can look good in front of the elders. He wasn't, his heart was not, uh, uh, was not broken. So we see in this uh, particular area, blame shifting. We see justification. He outwardly acknowledged his sin. Uh, he confessed as soon as he was caught. Uh, considered to be a shallow effort. Um, and then he wanted to look good. Um, he, wanted, he wanted to look good and he wanted his kingship to be aligned with Samuel. If you remember uh, Samuel, uh, most of Israel feared Samuel because they knew Samuel was a man of God. Samuel was a man of Samuel was a man of action, and uh, we're going to see that in a minute. Um, so the outcome, Samuel uh, said to Saul, "I will not return with you." This is in First uh, Samuel fifteen verses twenty six. For you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And then verse 20, 35, it says, And the Lord regretted that he made Saul king over Israel. That's a real vote of confidence. The Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. Samuel, Samuel did not want to be uh, associated with disobedience, so he says, I will not return with you. And now God is removing an unfaithful, disobedient leader. It didn't seem like he did all that much, to be um, taken out of the, his kingship, but uh, his heart was not in the right place. So now we move to uh, the, the end of Saul's life, 1 Samuel 31, th- verses 3 and 4. The battle went heavily against Saul, and the archers hit him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to the armor-bearer, Draw your sword and pierce me through with it, otherwise these uncircumcised will come and pierce me through and make sport of me. But the, his armor bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. So Saul took his sword and fell on it. Saul took his own life. Um, from God's perspective, this was the way that he removed an unfaithful leader to make room for a man on, after, his own, after his own heart. So, uh, um, as far as application uh, items, how inclined are we to trust our, our assessment when we've experienced recent success? Uh, when we have this success, how confident are we in our own way of thinking? Uh, I've had many days where I've gone through the day and I've said, oh, look at what I've done today. No, look at what the Lord has supported me with and allowed me to accomplish. So now let's look at David. David is the king that uh, uh, is often said that this is a man after God's own heart. Israel, the context is Israel uh, is in a season of discipline from the Lord. Uh, The Philistines are one of God's chosen instruments in providing discipline to Israel. The Philistines are superior in military power. Um, these are the, uh, the Philistines were uh, larger in stature. They had more weapons. In a lot of ways, all Israel had was tools. Uh, 
scythes for harvesting grain, um, plowing instruments. So how is it to go into battle against spears and bows when you're dragging a hoe behind you? Um, David and Goliath. Uh, here is, uh, here's David's uh, approach. Samuel, 1 Samuel 17, 46. This day the Lord will deliver you, and he's speaking to Goliath, up into my hands, and I will strike you down and remove your head from you, and I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. David is glorifying God. He's saying, I want you to know that I am fighting in God's army. David had absolute confidence in God's power and the ability to defend his own reputation. God's power. God's reputation. His heart, David's heart qualities, if you think back uh, as to who he was, he was a shepherd boy. He took care of the flock. How dedicated, how obedient was he in doing that? Um, the, uh, the Bible will tell you that uh, he fought off bear and lions, actually killed them. Um, and uh, for the most part, all he had was a staff. So he was, uh, he, had a, he, he was a man of humility. And secondly, he tr trusted in the Lord. David was pleased to be a representative of God and as one being used by God. So we have a, another king that was off to a pretty good start. Uh, we go back to Deuteronomy 17:17 17, 17 and remind ourselves that the, these, uh, the king shall not multiply wives for himself, or else his heart will turn away. So in this, it emphasizes his heart will turn away. As the wives increase, the attention of the king is drawn to all uh, of those wives. And uh, the language emphasizes here that uh, uh, that only there should only be one wife, and uh, that there that the wife or wives that you have uh, should not be a distraction uh, to you. Um, one of the thing, one of the the uh, uh, what happens to uh, when you have. In this case, David had more than one wife, and uh, it detracted from his being nearness to uh, the Lord, and that is was necessary for to be to be a good king. So um, here's the compromise: Second Samuel eleven one through four. Then it happened in the spring, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him, and all of Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. Now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful in appearance. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? David sent messengers, messengers and took her. And when she came to him, he lay with her. points to look at here, David already had multiple wives, um, 
and his place here was in Jerusalem. He'd, he had ruled for seven years in Hebron, and he'd had three wives from, uh, from when he was ruling in Hebron. Michael, who was Saul's daughter, Ahianom, and Abigail. David's heart was already distracted from the point that he was what he was supposed to be doing. He didn't go to battle. He didn't do what kings were supposed to be doing. Um, he was uh, in his home and apparently uh, uh, having a little time to kill. And uh, so the uh, Lord allowed him to be tempted. With a heart that's already turned away or looking away from God, sin is not far off. It was only a matter of time until, well, because of his weakened condition that he fell into sin. So what was his response to sin? Second Samuel 11, 8 and verse 10, 14 and 15. Then Samuel said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. Uriah had been out uh, in, the, in the field fighting. He came back um, and he sent Uriah down to his house, of course, to lay with, his, uh, with Uriah's wife because David was seeking to hide or cover up his sin. Now when they told David, and, and Uriah went out of the king's house, and a present from the king was sent out after him. Now when they told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And we found out that Uriah would not do that because of his, of his troops, of his comrades. They weren't uh, privy to the same... Uh, having the same uh, things available to them. They were still out in the, mil in the, in the field. And then uh, now David had to resort to a, a tougher or a much more severe act. Now in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it to the, by the hand of Uriah. Sent it by the hand of Uriah, his own death sentence. He had written in the letter saying, place Uriah in the front of the line of the fiercest battle and withdraw from him so that he may be struck down and die. David had made multiple attempts to put Uriah in bed with his own wife so that it would cover up David's sin. But God is sovereign, right? And he doesn't like sin. And there's most always a consequence for our sin. David end up, ends up marrying Bathsheba and she has a son. Um, and then uh, Nathan, uh, the prophet, comes to, to David and uh, David's, uh, and appeals to David's conscience uh, by giving him a story that is an analogy of what he's done. His analogy goes, uh, it's in chapter 12. A traveler comes to stay with a rich man who is great flocks and herdsmen. The rich man takes one of the only, one and only lamb from a poor man in order to provide for the traveler. And then in 2 Samuel 12, 5, 7, and 13, David's anger burned greatly against the man. Nathan then said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, it is I who anointed you king over Israel, and it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. Then Saul, then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. David's, uh, his initial response is, or um, 
His initial response was to hide. His second response was to acknowledge his sin and to seek repentance. He actually, uh, at that point in time, his son, Bathsheba's child, was sick. Uh, He was constantly in prayer for uh, for his son, even though he knew that uh, there probably was not going to be a good outcome. And he was fasting um, because his son was sick. So we see David's heart in Psalm 51, verses 1, 3, and 4. He says, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgressions, for I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only I, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. David is appealing for, to God's grace. He is aware of his sin. Um, he, he, he is concerned that he has no merit or favor with God. Um, and he truly, truly uh, was in a state of re- repentance. <coughs> At the end of David's life, which is described in 1 Kings 2, 1 through 4, as David's time to die drew near, he charged Solomon, his son, saying, I am going the way of all the earth. Be strong, therefore, and show yourself a man. Keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his ordinances, his testimonies according to what is written in the law of Moses, that you may succeed in all that you do wherever you turn, so that the Lord may carry out his promise, which he spoke concerning me, saying, If your sons are careful of their way to walk before me in truth with all their heart and with all their soul, and with all, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. David knew how important it was to pass on these commandments, seek uh, his son to desire to be obedient. Um, David had confessed, repented. David ended well. Solomon, the final king that we're going to look at. we got about two minutes here. Uh, the start um, to summarize First uh, Kings three seven through nine, um, Solomon asked not for wealth, not for uh, uh, a huge inheritance. He asked for wisdom to govern Israel. And if uh, uh, Saul did the right thing, if Israel was to be a witness and example to surrounding nations. Solomon would have Solomon would have to have wisdom in order to be uh, the king of Israel. Um, if you go back um, in Numbers thirty-three, it says the um, the Lord spoke to Moses and he cautioned him against allowing idols and allowing uh, the inhabitants of the land uh, to be left there. That's why he wiped everyone out completely. Take away these influences. Take away their idols. Um, The idols were already in the promised land before Israel got there. The Lord knew the effect of these idols would have on Israel would draw their affections away from him. And we also recall that uh, uh, you shall not multiply horses for yourself. Um, Shall not uh, uh, multiply wives for himself. 
or else his heart will turn away, nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. Solomon had a good start. He asked for wisdom. Uh, but in, in the things that as his kingship went on, he was blessed uh, by what the, the Lord would give him. He said, the Lord said, I will give you wealth also. And he gave him many horses. And he gave him much gold, much wealth. Uh, but he didn't give him, he did allow him to have many wives. David's warning to Solomon, be strong, therefore show yourself a man. Keep charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways. Keep his statutes and his commandments, his ordinances and his testimonies according to what is written in the law of Moses. And you will succeed. Now the compromise. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in his statutes, statutes as his father uh, David did, except he sacrificed and burned incense in high places. Here again, he chose to do it his own way. He chose to do some things according to God's commandments, but not others. So he chose his own ways to, to worship. He was given much gold. He... Um, uh, it says in 1 Kings 10, uh, 14 and 15, Now the weight of the gold which came to, into Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. He basically, he was taxing the, the nations around him. He was, uh, they were giving him gold for, for protection. He was acquiring many horses. He was acquiring much wealth um, and also acquired uh, many wives. So in 1 Kings 11, 1 through 3, I may be skipping over some of the passages that you have listed in your outline. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, also a Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, you shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you. For they shall surely turn your heart away after their gods. Solomon held fast to these in love. We know that as we introduce things, if we allow things to come into our life, if you allow uh, bad things to, to be displayed on your computer, if you, uh, and here again, you're the shepherd of your house, you are the leader, be a, have a watchful eye for what's going on in your house. Um, you just uh, it is so easy for a young person to click on a wrong site and that wrong site will take them so many different wrong places so um, and that's the the point of Solomon allowing all of these women to come into his his life several hundred wives and concubines and he says at the end of his life I said to my myself Come now, I will test you with pleasure, so enjoy yourself. This is God. Also I have collected for myself, or this is Solomon speaking, I also I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I provided for myself male and female singers and the pleasures of man, many concubines. What was Solomon's immediate response to sin? He chose to stay in it. But he recognized at the end 
He, cho- he knew that at the end of his life, he was able to see the true nature of foreign women, whereas they were at one point beautiful and attractive. He now sees them for what they really are. They were snares and nets. In Ecclesiastes 12, 13, and 14, the conclusion, Solomon is saying, When all has been heard is, Fear God and keep His commandments, because this applies to every person, for God will bring every act to judgment. Everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. God sees all that you do. There is not a creature hidden from His sight. So the outcome, Solomon kept his kingship throughout his lifetime. That's what God promised, promised him. Um, he says, I will, uh, I will surely tear the kingdom from you at the end of your, uh, at the end of your kingship. And that's what he did. Uh, he gave it to, one, uh, to uh, Solomon's uh, servant, which was Jeroboam. Solomon uh, had a son, which is Rehoboam. Um, Rehoboam uh, took over his kingship. He asked, "How should I govern the people? His, uh, how should I govern Israel?" His uh, elder said, "You shall treat them kindly and gently." He did not uh, uh, go with that advice. He went to some of his uh, friends uh, that gave him uh, different advice. Treat them harshly. And that causes a division uh, in uh, Israel. So Jeroboam Jeroboam went with the northern tribes. Rehoboam went with the southern tribes. um, And uh, God fulfilled his promise. He said, I will remove the kingdom, your kingdom from you. So that, uh, forgive me for having to rush through the the final part of that. the final, the lessons for us from kings, Israel's kings, we went over at the beginning, um, and uh, um, so, like I said in the beginning, I just want to encourage you: the more that you can touch God's word, whether it be on your cell phone, whether somebody's texting you passages, uh, the more that you can be involved in prayer, um, spiritual disciplines, huge. Um, just uh, and like I said earlier, if you are if, if you don't know, ask. How can I serve you better? How could I have helped you through this situation? And I'm just talking about from the standpoint of children and your wife. Um, allow them to trust you and to know that you have their best interest in mind, and never never neglect that you're not perfect. And that uh, when you mess up, confess, confess before you're caught, and uh, seek forgiveness. So, let me pray, and we'll be done. Father, again, thank you for your word. Thank you for your instruction. Your word does not go out in vain, and we are so grateful that we know you and that you've given us hearts to be able to understand uh, the commands that you have for us. I thank you for these men. I thank you for their diligence and their patience uh, this morning. Thank you so much for um, Grace Bible Church and uh, the disciplines that we seek to follow. In Jesus' name, amen.